today on Ag News Daily. And it's about how are the people treated up and down the pork supply chain as well. So trying to decouple that it's not always they're going to pay you more for your product in the retail case. They're going to choose you as a responsible protein of choice and have trust and confidence in U.S. pork. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Happy Wednesday here on the Ag News Daily Podcast. Delaney Howell joined today by a familiar voice to the podcast. Joined today, co-hosting with me is Darren Newsome. Darren, how are you doing today? <laughs> I'm doing well, Delaney. And did you ever think that you would actually be saying co-hosting with Darren Newsome? That's just, uh, that just sounds odd, but uh, appreciate you having me on with you. We're going to test your abilities because we know you can chat markets. We're going to see if you can chat ag news today. Okay. And uh, before we get to that, folks, before we chat news, Darren and I, I wanted to remind folks, of course, today we are sponsored by DPH Biologicals. They have been our sponsor here all week. We certainly appreciate that. But they have been putting out a lot of great new products and unharness your soil's fertility to maximize yield, visit dphbio.com. Darren, now that that is out of the way, really, you know, today seemed like it was a bit of a slower news day. And to be honest, I'm still traveling up in Wisconsin, Mm -hmm. got some good beer and cheese, so no complaints on my end. But really, the biggest headline that I've been watching today slash yesterday has been the announcement of the biofuel mandates that came out of the Biden administration here And I think really the big takeaways have been that they denied or are going to deny all of the pending 65 small refinery exemptions, Mm -hmm. as well as a restoration of about 500 million gallons found to be illegally slashed from the RFS during the years of 2014 to 2016, as well as some improved aid going to biofuel producers. But what do you make of this today? You know, I, I I don't know that there was a lot there, but but it's interesting. You're right. I mean, that was one of the pieces of news that was out there. You know, it's interesting that we aren't going to be handing out waivers like Halloween candy at this point, at least for a while, it seems. And they also with the mandates, at least from what I read, as far as the, the levels are, they were ex- as expected, which were actually down. But again, this fits in with overall gasoline demand, even pre-COVID, that was starting to die off or or slow down. So it's not a huge surprise. The market seemed to take it in stride. And, you know, so we've got that out of the way now. Now let's see what happens going forward. Let's see, you know, how strong driving demand stays, uh, how, uh, you know, what these these mandates do uh, over the years to come. Yeah. And the other component that I've read a lot about this morning has just been the response we've received from especially politicians here in the Midwest, which really from what I've read, haven't been entirely satisfied with the announcement that was put out by the Biden administration. Well, of course not, because, you know, you're talking about party politics, uh, you know, but at least we have an announcement. I mean, we've we've gone years without these announcements being made and, you know, just kind of flying blind. So I I don't think it really would have mattered what was said. Uh, I know many in the Midwest wanted to see uh, larger uh, mandates for renewable fuels and so on. It just wasn't going to happen. It's just not in the cards. I think we've, we've peaked this demand. Uh, You know, we've had this, we've had this surge of drying post uh, post lockdown, Uh, but it's still not going to take us back to where we were, say, 2016, 17, 18, when, when all of a sudden we just quit getting these mandates to begin with. 
Yeah, certainly not. So that was kind of the big headline I've been watching today, Darren. What have mm-hmm. you been watching? You know, as far as as far as what I found interesting in the market, there's a lot of there was a lot of headlines, particularly out Tuesday that that came into play. I think, I think late Tuesday and and over the course of Wednesday session, you know, we we have the uh, U.S. China situation heating up again. The U.S. Uh, announcing it's going to do a diplomatic boycott mm-hmm. of the Beijing uh, Winter Olympics, and you and China and a China rep, Chinese representative come out saying that the U.S. will pay for this. Well, okay, so now fast forward to Wednesday, and we're seeing Canada, London, and other countries, or the United Kingdom and other countries, uh, saying they're going to join the United States. So I think, you know, in the soybean market, we were already tentative with our sales. We aren't, we, you know, our export sales are slow uh, for this time of year. And now we've got this bubbling cauldron underneath the market that we're going to have to keep a close eye on going forward. Similar situation in wheat, where there was a teleconference, tele-meeting between U.S. President Biden and you and uh, Russian President uh, Putin on Tuesday talking about, you know, how there would be, you know, there would be warning, you know, the U.S. was warning, President Biden was warning President Putin about, you know, repercussions if Russia invaded Ukraine. This always puts the wheat market on edge uh, anytime this starts to pop up. And so as we get closer to the weekend and Russian troops are getting busy along the Ukrainian border, I think it gives wheat traders a lot to think about, certainly a lot to watch heading uh, through the end of this week. Yeah. And, you know, when you look at the Chinese situation, that one is just very particular to me because when Ashton shared just a little bit about the diplomatic, you know, boycott, at first I thought she meant we wouldn't be participating in the Olympics altogether, which seems like a strange thing to use to try and leverage in trade relationships, which obviously that isn't the case. But the other thing that, you know, you have to keep in mind is that we're getting close to the end of the phase one trade agreement. We really still don't have anything in place as far as a phase two goes. Does the market well, the f- care about that? Is I mean, is that creating uncertainty for us? Or at this point, are there just so many other factors like COVID that the market just doesn't care? Well, the phase one was mostly smoke and mirrors. I mean, it was done for for publicity purposes, and and you know, no one's really ever lived up to anything that we talked about in phase one. You know, and and really, the bottom line is the U.S. has become a secondary player in the global soybean market. So. You know, we were able to take advantage of the situation with with uh, Brazil basically running out of soybeans last year. So our soybeans in 2020-21, our exports jumped. Now let's see. You know, the talk is that weather's been better for uh, for Brazil, uh, at least heading into the summer. So that means their crop theoretically could be better, but it's still very early. So you know, if that's the case. China doesn't have to be interested in U.S. soybeans anymore. That doesn't have to live up to any deals. Do we need a phase two? I think we've got a lot to. I think we've got a lot to get through yet before we can even start to you know start to talk about a phase two. We've got these other things popping up, as you said. I mean, it's it's the Olympics. It's diplomatic. Uh, it's a diplomatic boycott, but still, it all feeds in together. It all comes back to this economic you know fight between. U.S. and China, and I and I think it's going to have some. I think it's going to have some ripple effects in the in the soybean industry. Absolutely, and and speaking of an economic effect here, I want to talk about a little bit of fertilizer related news. But while we're yeah. talking about fertilizer, are you looking for an alternative to starter fertilizer? DPH Biologicals offers a competitive alternative for broad acre crops without sacrificing yield. 
refined across millions of acres, TerraTrove combines microbes, plant extracts, and algae to offer the most complete biofertility solution available. To unharness soils, fertility to maximize yield, visit dphbio.com to learn more. And as we're on that note, talking fertilizers, that's been a really common theme in a lot of these ag meetings I've been at this winter, Darren, has just been the question mark revolving around acreage, but more so input costs. And we saw today reported by DTN that nitrogen fertilizers maintained their spot as the highest price of all retail fertilizers as they continue to climb higher here. And in November, we saw a huge jump in fertilizers all across the board, but really nitrogen led the way there. Uh, about was it wasn't that quite a chart that yeah. they posted? I mean, that was, I know, and it's I mean. <laughs> crazy to look at because you see a lot of ups and downs, and you know this is interesting too. I'll get I'll take get your take on this because yesterday I was talking to I don't I didn't catch if he was a farmer or a retail partner, but he said you know high prices cure high prices and low prices cure low prices when it comes to commodity markets. But do you think that will be the case when it comes to the fertilizer market as well? Well. <laughs> I, I don't think so. I mean, because we're not going to see, you know, we're not going to see demand. I, I think the demand for fertilizer is much more inelastic than what we see in many commodities. And so, you know, fertilizer dealers, fertilizer producers know there's going to be strong demand. If we look at that, you know, the soy corn spread that everyone always likes to talk about the corn, you know, December corn's trying to buy acres away. So, I mean, Will it buy acres away? I think it all comes down to not only the price of fertilizer, but the availability of fertilizer uh, as we head into 2023. And and the producers and the retailers know this. They they can see the same thing. They can see that you know, given any opportunity, that the U.S. wants to plant more corn. And that being the case, fertilizer prices go up, chemical prices go up, and they're very slow to come down. I mean, uh, mm-hmm. I don't know that they're just automatically going to you know peak and start falling back down, particularly as we head into the winter and spring. Yeah, absolutely. And so it's going to be pertinent, I think, for a lot of growers to stay up to date Mm -hmm. on what's going on there as they are making those final decisions. Darren, what other news did you have for today? You know, there was, there's been a lot going on. If we, you know, then we had the, you know, the latest news in the, in the, with the Omicron, however you want to pronounce Mm -hmm. it, variant, uh, where Pfizer came out today and said that its booster shot is very effective against the variant. So, you know, that provided some support to financial markets. We saw the, you know, the U.S. stock markets go up. What was interesting though is that cattle seemed to be a little bit tired in here. Often there's a, you know, we see the cattle chase the, the stocks higher. And it didn't really happen today. We saw cattle markets under pressure, some non-commercial selling going on there. Uh, again, it just looks a little bit tired. We're seeing some lower boxed beef prices this week. The cash market's uh, quiet on the on the buying side. So, you know, maybe starting to see just some fatigue in the cattle markets. And, you know, as we look out, uh, you know, to, you know, winter demand, just naturally it starts to slow down a bit, uh, but for some of the meat, for the, some of the meat markets. Yeah, absolutely. That seasonal time of year. But hopefully folks are going to be jam packing their holiday seasons with lots of high quality protein. I know I certainly will be. That's right. Well, I tell you what, Darren, I don't have any other news today to chat about besides markets. What about you? Uh, that's got most of the market, uh, most of the news that I was looking at today. I mean, it covered the wide, you know, wide range of, uh, of ag markets and so on financial markets. That's basically all I was, uh, all I saw throughout the course of the day. 
Fantastic. Well, folks, let's chat markets then. And once again, we are sponsored today by DPH Biologicals. If you haven't checked out last week's Tech Tuesday interview with Mick Messman, president and CEO of DPH Biologicals, we talked a lot about a bunch of great things and very timely as we are continuing to look at those increasing input costs. We talked about the company's new biofertility platform, TerraTrove, which refined across millions of acres, TerraTrove works in broad acre applications to improve soil structure while manufacturing plant nutrition. TerraTrove combines microbes, plant extracts, and algae to offer the most complete biofertility solutions available to unharness soil fertility and maximize yield. Visit dphbiological.com to learn more. And with that, Darren, taking a look at the markets today, we finish mixed in the corn markets, higher in soybeans, and lower, like you mentioned earlier, in the wheat market. March corn today up a penny and a quarter to close at 587 and a quarter. The Deese up a quarter cent to close at 554 and three quarters. In the soybean pits today, we saw some moves to the upside as the January contract added 10 and three quarter cents, closing at 1261. The March up 10 and a half cents, closing at 1268 and three quarters. Chicago wheat lower today is the March contract cut 14 cents to end at 794 and a half. The Dece down nine and three quarters, closing the day out at 796 and a half. Hopping over to take a look at the livestock pits today, we saw weakness across the entire protein complex as the February live cattle contract gave up 55 cents today to close at 138.67 and a half. The April down 57 and a half cents to close at 141.87 and a half. Feeder cattle today, as I mentioned, there continued that weakness with the January contract losing $1.62, closing at $163.40. The March down $1.60, closing at $165.87 and a half. And lean hogs also showing weakness today as the February contract gave up 50 cents to close at $76.05. The April cutting 62 and a half cents today to close at $81.42 and a half. And lastly, wrapping things up here with the class three dairy milk futures. We saw the January contract added 21 cents today, closing at 1975. The February up 10 cents to close at 1981. Without further ado, folks, we're going to be turning it over to a two-part conversation airing from NAFB's convention on a sustainability panel. And first of all, a bit about Brett. Brett Kaysen is the Senior VP of Sustainability for the National Pork Board. He leads the organization's wide effort to establish pork as the responsible protein of choice. He works to strengthen food chain and consumer understanding of pork production practices by developing research-based communication strategies that engage and influence key decision makers. Brett, thanks again for being here this morning. Also, Mariah Johnson serves as the Senior Director of Beef Sustainability Research with the NCBA, National Cattlemen's Beef Association. Now, in her position, Mariah leads the Beef Checkoff's Sustainability Research Program. She is responsible for not only setting the direction of the research program, but developing and implementing checkoff-funded programs through NCBA as a contractor to the Beef Checkoff that validate and benchmark how beef is responsibly and sustainably raised. we got to bring the value back to the consumer as well, not just the, the producer or farmer, whatever you're talking, dairy, beef, or pork. Is that correct, Mariah? 
certainly there has to be value for that consumer as well. And at NCBA, we also have a great human nutrition research team. And so I can't speak to the full extent of their program by any means, you know, but they do a great job of really helping us to keep that in balance and look at, you know, what is that value to the consumer and that we have this very nutrient dense packed protein that we can put on a customer's plate that provides more more nutrient dense, whether it's the vitamins, the minerals, the protein, and um, for fewer calories. And so again, that's a piece too. But even when we start thinking about that, we think about the environmental footprint or the economic footprint, all these sustainability footprints. What other foods can you consume that are that nutrient packed and have the smallest greenhouse gas impact or whatever it might be? And so when you put that on a per calorie or per ounce of protein basis, I think beef starts to pull away and is able to to take the lead there. Brett, if you want to answer that as well. Yeah, the consumer audience is an interesting group. And uh, the first thing our farmers ask us, well, Brett, will they pay more for, right? If I measure, monitor, and report these things, will they pay for more? And they should be asking those questions. And the answer is, and it's not a popular one with our producers, no, they won't. They're, they may say they will, but the data suggests and the research says they won't. And so then the farmer may say, well, Brett, why would we do it? Well, they have other protein choices. And so it's not always about will they pay more for it. It will They will make another choice. You know, maybe they'll take care of Mariah and her team better. You know, they'll choose beef or they'll choose poultry or they'll choose dairy or they'll cho- choose an alternative, you know, protein as well. And so we think from a consumer's perspective, it's about health and wellness, nutrient-dense uh, protein. It's about protecting the planet. And it's about how are the people treated up and down the pork supply chain as well. Mm-hmm. So trying to decouple that it's not always they're going to pay you more for your product in the retail case. They're going to choose you as a responsible protein of choice and have trust and confidence in U.S. pork. That's the long-term game both domestically and then for us, 30% of our product goes to the international markets, and that's important in our global space as well. Any questions, once again, feel free. We have about 25 minutes remaining in this morning's uh, session. Talking more about social sustainability, I think that's just so broad, seeing what's all involved in that aspect. Mariah, I'll have you talk about that. I know we've hit on uh, some of the details on that, but focus on that for a second. Um, is it kind of telling the, the, the farmer's story, tell your story? It's kind of involved in that whole uh, social sustainability factor, right? Sure, it's in, involved in that, and I think it also relates greatly to what Brett was just mentioning, if I build on that, about taking care of people up and down the supply chain. And so that's a big component of it. And I think a lot of times when consumers may think about that, they think about what's been in the news recently in the past year. That's been a lot of the packing plants. But certainly we need to make sure that we're taking care of those farmers and ranchers as well. I mentioned a little bit about that earlier within the mental health aspect. Um, suicide numbers have been increasing, especially in rural areas across the U.S. And we know there's a lot of stress on farms. So that's a big component of social sustainability as we look at that. And so we're starting to to move into that area and, and what research needs to be done there and how can we impact that space because it's about taking care of the people and the families at the end of the day. And other components of social sustainability as well would involve things like recreation and tourism. We're looking at funding some work that looks at community satisfaction. So how do people who live in rural areas who maybe don't farm and ranch, what value do, do, do they derive from the wide open spaces that Beef Cow help to protect? 
I think there's certainly value that we bring there into helping to protect that landscape. Some of the other research was those frameworks that we're developing really look at community security because I think that's another large component is as these rural areas, as people move out, are there resources there for many of our farmers and ranchers to continue operating? How many times is it that something breaks and we've got to drive over an hour to go get to go get a part? or you can't get somebody out to service your equipment. And those are things that certainly play into that social side as well and add to that stress and the time and all of those components. Um, so several different areas that are circling within the social area. And so starting to work on those um, and to bring those to life. And one other area even too that I would mention that crosses over. So again, going back to how we bring all three pillars of sustainability together would be across the past couple of years, we've seen an enormous number of acres in wildfires burned up. And so how can cattle play a role in that? And how can cattle be beneficial? Well, we all know that cattle go out and graze in pastures or they can graze in forests and rangelands and these, um, these federal lands. And so in doing so, they're helping to reduce the fuel load that can be caught up in that spark and that will burn. And so if we can put cattle on the lands, if we can have that symbiotic relationship with the federal government to graze those lands, it's cost effective for the government because they don't have to come out there and pay money to mechanically manage that brush and those grasses. But it helps those those producers to have space to graze their cattle and helps them to be economically viable because in some places, most of the land is federally controlled. And so in doing so, by having those cattle there, we can protect infrastructure, which certainly <laughs> protects people's lives when they don't have to go out and fight a fire, but we're protecting property and people's homes too. And so those are just a number of the ways in which cattle can work and are contributing to that social sustainability space. Yeah, Brett, I'll have you comment on that as well. Yeah, let me give you a, a view from my position each and every day. And I have a unique opportunity in which I get to represent 62,000 pig farmers in, in some of the corporate suites around the globe. And so when I think about our customers, so when I say our customers, I'm talking about some of the largest retailers, so Costco, Walmart, you know, some of the largest restaurant chains, right, in, in the world. The questions they're asking me on the social piece are changing. So it used to be you would sit in those corporate suites and they'd ask you about animal welfare, no question. They'd ask you about antibiotics. They'd ask you about sow housing. And now the conversation's actually changing to tell me about how the people are treated at the sow farm. How are they treated? Tell me what they do. Tell me about how the people are treated at the packing and further processing plants. What does that look like for us, Brett? So our customers are asking those hard questions, and they should be. And the bottom line is you can drive around Kansas City here and everybody's got a help wanted sign out. I was actually talking to a colleague on the drive down. Salary alone will not get us out of this labor challenge that we have. Not one silver bullet will get us out of. But there's competing interests. You can go to work at Target for $18 an hour. Or you can go to the South Farm. People are going to make choices. And so we've got to create a social environment that attracts people to the farm. It's a great place to work. It's a great place that the people will support you and actually invest in you as a person and as a future leader, right, to get you engaged in this wonderful thing about nourishing the world. And so we've always taken care of our people and we always will. But the expectation of the modern day worker is different. 
how they want to be invested in, the leadership qualities they desire, the environment in which they want to function. And we've got to meet them there. We've got to meet them halfway. And also back to Maria's point, just had the opportunity, and you're going to ask, right, why did you do this? Just drove 26 hours from Paso Robles, California, back to central Iowa. If agriculture goes away, there's a lot of communities in this country that go away. Main Street, small-town America gets folded up and put to bed. And I will tell you, and I'll give you a prime example, that there are people that buy pork both here and abroad that are passionate about protecting small-town America. They are. And an example would be I had the opportunity to be on vacation this summer in the Caribbean with my family, and I can't help but wear a pork hat even in the swimming pool, right? My wife says, just can't you not wear something pork one day? So this is who I am. So I do. And there was a family there from Miami, and they said, well, where are you from? Well, I'm from Iowa. Well, what are you? I'm a pig farmer. What do you do? I work for pig farmers. And described the Midwest to them. Some of them had never been to the Midwest. And they said, that sounds like a really relaxing, peaceful way of life. These were teenagers and 20-somethings in the swimming pool from Miami that said that seems like a relaxing, peaceful way of life. There's something there, and we need to augment that and protect it and attract others into it. Question? See, you have the microphone set for tall people. (laughs) I'm used to that. Dennis Michelson, WITY Radio, Danville, Illinois. Uh, recently, we've seen California enact changes to how pork is produced, are we, and that's going to affect the entire industry potentially if those rules stay in place. Are we likely to see the same sort of state-by-state rules when it comes to sustainability, carbon emissions, footprint of farming that's going to affect my listeners in Illinois, uh, even if the, the laws are only passed in California, New York, and Washington State? Thank you. Brett, you want to start off with that question? Happy to take it. And the answer is yes, it's a high risk. Absolutely. Proposition 12 in California has created a challenge. And starting January 1, it'll put pressure on those customers of pork. They'll have less available to them. It'll cost them more. And it's a big component of our pork protein-consuming public, right? And so when you talk about food security, nourishing people, and you're putting them in in a challenging space because of availability and price, it's an issue. That is the risk that one by one states would make their own what they believe fundamental fundamental sustainable animal welfare policies, and that is a scary strategy. So what do you do? It's what exactly Mariah and I are doing and leading is that you build the roadmap of success. Otherwise, someone's going to dictate it to you. Okay. And so as Mariah and I work with our producers, when we start talking about sustainability frameworks and goals and metrics and how it bolts up to the UN SDGs, you may get some glazed looks. But when you really lean into it and say, okay, Pig farmers, draw the roadmap and the playbook that what you consider is sustainability from a farmer's perspective. That's when we win. Because otherwise, I will tell you, and it's already been built, the Walmart Gigaton project's built. They have key performance indicators for pork today. And those really don't play very well in Peoria, Illinois. They don't fit for that production system. And so that's why farmer-led sustainability framework initiatives are so important. Because they do it every day. They know what's reasonable. They know what's um, realistic from an improvement perspective. And if we don't make the rules for animal agriculture ourselves, others like Prop 12 in California will make the rules. Just an uninformed group of voters that don't understand pig production. It is a real risk. 
Mariah, give us a look from the beef side of things when, when you hear of a, a Prop 12 scenario for the pork industry. Talk about it from the beef side. Certainly, and I would echo much of Brett's comments. Uh, you know, we saw some some different ideas come forward in Colorado, even within this past year regarding animal husbandry and how that could be impacted. But even at the end of the day, whether it's something that's going through legislation or not, I think to Brett's point, there are those projects, whether it's the Walmart Gigaton or it's McDonald's or it's Wendy's or it's a whoever it might be, whoever those in, in buyers are, they are, they have ideas and they are trying to meet their consumers' needs. And so they will come back. They will push down through the supply chain and, and set the limits on what they want, what they want to see and how they expect um, the beef or the pork to be produced. And so it's a place where certainly have to engage and to talk and to be able to lay out that roadmap, as Brett was saying, and to put that together. And there are some of those things where it doesn't work when it's created in a corporate level office in a metroplex and you bring it down to the farm. But I think there's been um, a number of examples of where that engagement has really helped. So in a previous role, when I worked for the Noble Research Institute, we engaged with several of these entities with McDonald's and with Golden State Foods. And back down through the supply chain, we really had a lot of great understanding come out of that when we engaged when not only did people from McDonald's or Golden State Foods came to the farms and asked about how these things were applied and what this looks like, like Brett's talking about how are these people treated or how do you do this or what does their day look like? But there was also a lot of learning from a producer side when we say, okay, what does your day look like? What are your pressures? And those are our customers. And so how can we help you meet the demands that you have? And so I think that's really important is that continued engagement. And I think we see engagement throughout the supply chain through several um, industry efforts, not um, there's the field to market, there's U.S. Roundtable for Sustainable Beef and um, countless others that we can point towards. But those are all very important in engaging and in helping to, I wouldn't say combat, but to engage and to work through some of those challenges and issues where there may be misunderstandings. Well, again, folks, that is a two-part panel that will air second part tomorrow. So be sure to tune into the podcast and check it out. Darren, certainly appreciate having you on, though, today as a guest co-host. We'll have to do this again sometime. Well, I, again, I really appreciate Delaney. I look forward to it. I look forward to working with you again. Well, Darren, I'm assuming most of our listeners probably follow you on social media, but let's give a quick plug for you in case they don't. Easiest way to find me is, uh, you know, on social media is to go to Twitter. I'm just simply Darren Newsom. I, I think they can find me there. Uh, and then if they're, you know, that's uh, that's probably the easiest way to uh, to find out where where what I'm saying and what I'm looking at the time. Fantastic. And folks, be sure to follow along with us on social media as well on Facebook, Twitter, and link and Instagram at Ag News Daily. Darren, with that, should we let the people go? I think so. They've put up with me long enough. <laughs> Ha, 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 ha.